0: Learn that death is not the, end of the, new flesh. Mom, the
1: new flesh. I was hoping you'd be back.
0: Welcome to the new flesh podcast. My name is Brett Arnold at Brettredacted on twitter.com. I am here yet again with Jesse Hassinger uh, of sportsalcohol.com. Welcome, Jesse. Hello uh, and we are back to discuss the fourth and final. Film in this quote unquote, uh, I guess franchise or universe because this is uh, Psycho 4. Uh, what is the subtitle? The Beginning, the beginning. yes, Psycho 4. The Beginning. I have it on Blu ray right here. Um, mm-hmm. but it was it debuted on Showtime in America. It was like made in the summer, I believe they wrapped on July 3rd and it was on television in September. Um, it was watched by like 10 million people or something crazy, like a oh, wow. really big number. I believe it got theatrical play in the UK and a bunch of other territories. But in the US, it was always, uh, uh, you know, made for TV. And it was, you know, you know how TVs were present TV uh, movies were presented back in 1990. It was not presented in the same theatrical um cut that i was able to watch on the blu-ray i was curious what the stars version looks like is the stars version like a like it just looks like a regular movie like it's a regular format it's not like 4-3 or anything
1: yeah it's not 4-3 i was wondering about that as well it seems to be like a dvd style master of it
0: because mick garris on the commentary said that he's thrilled that shout factory put this out because that you know they made it as if it were going to be a theatrical movie, even though it was going to be on Showtime, because they planned on doing that, you know, international release. So you know, they did have that master, even though the Showtime version was surely like whatever, not not pan and scanned, but you know, <laughs> but like cut been, for yeah, TV.
1: Must been, they must have had to protect for four three or whatever as they were shooting, knowing it was going to part of it was going to be part of its release would be TV. I remember fondly. I mean, or just, I remember, I guess there's no real fondness attached, but uh, mm. the monthly cable guide that would come in the mail. I remember reading about this movie in that in 1990 because 10 year old me was super into the cable guide, which would tell me what movies were going to be on HBO, etc.
0: Oh, I Ooh, love not- the cable yeah. guide. I don't <laughs> even know if I had necessarily a cable guide. I think it was just the TV guide. Is that what it was or was it like
1: <laughs> this, a- was, this was a separate thing that was like sent by the cable company that had, what like, cable company did you have about, in 1990? In like, an index, even of like stuff that was going to be on, I think it was mostly geared towards the premium channels. But although I think it had other stuff, but I, my main thing with, with it because we had HBO was like, oh, this is going to give me the scoop on like when and where the HBO movies for
0: the month. Are gonna turn on, are gonna turn up, so I can record them on my VHS player. <laughs> yeah, man, this, these are all. A, a lot of our younger listeners might be like, <laughs> this might be like speaking another language to yeah. them. Um, but I, I am, I am definitely younger. But I, I grew up with a VCR at home, and I definitely, we had in my hometown growing up for at least until I was in junior high, the entire town that I lived in had HBO and Showtime for free. Uh, on channel four was HBO and channel 20 was Showtime. And it was basically like, I don't remember how it worked back then. Wasn't it just, you had like a cable and you plugged it in your TV or whatever. Like whoever did that in Skokie, Illinois, you just (laughs) had those channels. And then eventually, uh, that went away and we had to buy it. But I mean, growing (laughs) up, it it was a huge thing to have. And like, um, I vividly remember, I mean, so my entire, Whatever you call it, den in that in, in the house I grew up in was full of VHS tapes that were just shit I recorded off the TV. Probably recording oh, yeah. over I, some I, I family never memories. I just taped everything. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> uh, so do you remember watching that? You de- You never watched this back then. I, n- I did not watch this back then. I was too young to be
1: interested. In, I was not interested in horror until I was thirteen or fourteen. And I want to say we Showtime was weirdly not available in Saratoga Springs where I grew up like it the, the movie channel was and they had most of the same movies and i sometimes we got free previews of the movie channel and i would tape stuff off that but i to my recollection i don't know if it was my tv or our cable system uh but you just i don't think you could actually get showtime locally until until digital until cable was made digital here
0: wow i can't imagine not growing up with <laughs> channel 4 and channel 20 it was such a big deal <laughs> Channel twenty after like eleven p.m. would be a little a uh, little racy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yep. red red shoe diaries
1: <laughs> or whatever the fuck would Ooh, with be David
0: up. McComney? <laughs> I like that. That's, that's where I go. <laughs> yeah, David oh, McComney. McComney. That's what everyone thinks of when they think of red shoe diaries. Uh, definitely HBO had a uh, real sex. All the all yep. the real ones know. All the real yep. kids who grew up with <laughs> with pay cable <laughs> know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sorry, yep. mom and dad who are listening <laughs> right now. Um. <laughs> Okay, what the fuck are we talking about? Let us move on to the... Let's do quickly some bits and pieces of news so we can get on to the episode because not only do I have to talk about Psycho 4 with you today, I also have to unload... I have to download all this information I just uploaded to my brain about Psycho 3 because I just watched the commentary a week late after getting the Blu-ray literal hours after recording last week's episode. Perfectly timed. Thank you, (laughs) I think that one came from eBay that the one from eBay showed up first. So thank you to what I wish I had his username handy. Um, uh, So I will get to that shortly. First with the news, Uh, I guess the biggest news and the most recent news is that universal has plans to restart filming on Jurassic world dominion uh, this July in the UK. Um, So this is kind of the, this is the first major studio movie that's restarting filming properly Uh, In the UK, as deadline is reported, cameras are due to roll the second week of July at Pinewood Studios. Uh, The filmmakers and studio Top Brass have pulled out all the stops to get the production back uh, underway after it was halted by the pandemic in mid-March, four weeks into a 20-week shoot. In recent days, production staff have been implementing rigorous safety protocols on site, and a two-week pre-production period will begin next week, which I think started this week. Um, The plan is for us to be shooting early mid-July. Universal has been working with the UK's British Film Council and US unions to ensure the production meets required safety standards. But it is also going beyond those measures. The safety measures will include the commission of a private medical facility called Your Doctor to manage the entire production's medical needs, COVID training for all cast and crew, on-site doctors, nurses and isolation booths, 150 hand sanitizer stations, nightly antiviral fogs, which is in quotes and very alarming sounding. What is the antiviral fog? Cool.
1: Um, (laughs) You know, they're talking about using that also with... um, with movie theaters, Regal announced a, p- a plan recently, maybe today, to um, to, uh, to make that part of the are pretty like a fog machine that pushes plan. out good air or something. Yeah, well, it's I think it's extremely hot. It's like a it sounds like a kind of more natural version of a bug bomb, but not with chemicals. It kind of uses like steam. It kind of it fills the room with f- steam. Oh, I read
0: about a police car that does this or something. Yeah,
1: it sort of disinfects with uh, you know
0: without leaving a gross residue or anything like that. Oh, wow. So they'll, they'll have those things. They'll have more yeah. than 1,800 safety signs put up around Pinewood and green zones for shooting cast and crew. Mass will be obligatory other than for actors while performing. Some of Dominion's main cast, including Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, return to the U.S. during the hi- hiatus but will fly back to the U.K. shortly where they will need to carry out a two-week quarantine period per new government regulations. Actors traveling from the U.S. will be tested prior to leaving the country, too. Um, so I guess I said all that to ask you a question, which is, is it all worth it? Should huh. we be doing all this because we want to see the, the dinosaur movie quicker? Yeah, yeah I mean it doesn't it feel just kind of not I don't know what the word is. It feels gross to be even talking about it yes. when there's so many other pertinent issues related to this very pandemic that could be happening.
1: Yeah. I mean I guess if 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 they're not going to hurt anyone by doing this or yeah. thinking they can they can get around it and the crew members aren't don't feel uncomfortable I guess that seems okay. It just seems like what's the rush for like a movie you don't even know if it could make its release date, you know? Like, yeah,
0: that's the whole thing. There are so many movies out right now that are that are in post that are even done and ready to go but can't because of the situation globally. So maybe like it just it's crazy to me that I guess it it, it seems a little crazy for productions to be ramping up when there's no like the it's like the the, the production side is ramping up but the distribution side is not yet. Yeah. you know what I mean. So like what. What is the point? They're not going to put Jurassic Park on cable. I'm assuming by the time, I mean, it's release date's it's like j- June of next year. So presumably yeah. theaters will be open by then. But what about the shift of all the movies that were supposed to come out this summer? Like, are those good movies going to still come out or are they going to get pushed? We already know Fast and Furious and uh, the Saw movie. There's a bunch of them that just got pushed a full year. Yeah. So...
1: I don't know. Yeah, I get that they don't, you know, it all seems like a kind of weird game of chicken where like, no one wants to be the one to say, you know what, we're going to take a wait and see and we're going to like, p-. so even when they kind of are taking a wait and see, it seems like they have to pretend like they're making moves and making right. sure that, and I know, mean, protecting I, their dates and all that.
0: I don't want to sound like an asshole because I know like, you know, this movie going into production will put pe- get people their jobs back and whatnot. And that's great. And um, I'm all for that. But just, I mean, it sounds like they're doing all they can to be safe, so I guess this is kind of like the guinea pig movie uh, production, where it's like, uh, let's see what happens to Chris Pratt. <laughs> Will Chris Pratt get coronavirus? Stay tuned. We'll, we'll, we'll keep you posted on this throughout the Dominion production. We've got spies on the set. Uh, New flesh is... We're
1: his temperature. Yeah, yeah. I'm really using
0: your guys' Patreon money really well. I'm sending people to, to Pinewood. All right, um, Hellraiser, this is really cool news. The, the rights to Hellraiser could revert back to st- original creator Clive Barker in 2021. Uh, Larry Zerner, who's a lawyer, who I believe is most famous in horror circles for being an entertainment lawyer, who is always keeping uh, fans abreast of what's happening in the Friday the 13th litigation, which there is so much of. Um, yeah. But he's keeping, he basically dropped a bomb this week saying, for those of you who like the Friday the 13th lawsuit... Now, Clive Barker has sued uh, for a declaratory judgment that he can terminate his 1986 transfer and get back his rights to the Hellraiser franchise. So, uh, under this, he wants to get the franchise back, which would include, you know, Pinhead, all the Cenobites. Um, and he has sent a notice of termination to producers, and he plans to grab back the rights to the original book and all that stuff. So, he, add, the lawyer adds an interesting note that Barker's termination, if effective, would not take place until December 19th, 2021. So if the producers can get a new movie out before then, they would legally be in the clear, just nothing new after that date. Um, and Bloody Disgusting reached out to, uh, to help clarify how it's similar to Friday the 13th. And uh, he said Barker would get his rights uh, get back his rights in the underlying story he wrote and also the rights in first script, he would not get any rights in things that were any of the sequels that were added, which totally makes sense for how these franchises work. But this is most interesting because we have reported a few weeks ago that David Bruckner, who was long attached to a Friday the 13th reboot, has is actually now attached to a theatrical reboot of Hellraiser, uh, the first time that franchise is going uh, theatrical since like the 90s. So this is exciting. But will it happen? It seems like if they rush production, it will happen. But given what we just talked about and coronavirus uh, impacting production, I guess this is kind of a race now to see if they can make this movie before Clive Barker sues to get the rights back. <laughs> so uh, something to keep your eye on. Uh, I'm I'm all for Clive getting it back. I've said for a long time. I know he's wanted to remake it. And I think if anyone c- should do it, it's him. So I hope that happens. Uh I hope that happens. And if the, the Bruckner one happens first, I will take that one too, because I am a greedy little horror fan. <laughs> uh, Universal just set a five picture deal with uh, Timur Bekmetnaboff. I can never pronounce his fucking name. Yeah, Timur Bekmetnaboff, the guy who's the mega producer behind what Deadline seems to be casually calling screen life movies, a term that I have not agreed to, and I don't think anyone has. But it's basically those mo- I call them desktop movies, I guess, which is basically the same thing. Um, uh, movies like Unfriended and uh, Searching, movies that unfold. Um, they don't have traditional cameras, and they tell the story through visual means, unfolding from the POV of a smartphone or a computer screen, where most you know people spend most of their hours nowadays anyway. So this dude Beck blah 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 is. Uh, I believe that guy was the producer on Wanted. Did he direct Wanted or just produce Wanted? I think he directed, Timur directed it, yeah. Yeah, he directed Wanted, and I think since then that movie was a fucking huge hit, and he's just been, like, quietly being, like, a super producer, I feel like. Like, a lot of his movies make a lot of money. Like, didn't he produce, like, uh, the POV movie, Hardcore Henry, and all these? He's just produced a lot of, like, experimental format movies, I guess I would say. Yes. So Universal set a five picture deal with him to do five more of these Screen Life movies because Unfriended, which is their example, uh, made cost one million and made sixty five. And there's a the sequel, which is even better that I don't know how much it made. I don't have it right here. But um, it's great. He said uh, he can't he said he wants to do maybe do a sequel to Wanted in Screen Life. I can't imagine an assassin in today's world. Uh, would run with the gun why he will use drones he will use computer technology you don't need to bend bullets anymore you need to bend ideas that's what he told (laughs) deadline um he's currently been doing that with screen life a format that coincidentally has proven very conducive to a pandemic that's something i hadn't considered um while Hollywood productions have been shuttered since march he has been producing five movies during covid 19 lockdown during this crazy time, we have been living in screen life mode. It is very organic to produce movies because they can be done while people are home in their safe place. We are all in different cities and we can record screens without meeting each other. It's the nature of this language, this screen life format to work like this. It's a very organic production process. Um, I'm not going to read the whole interview, but I think that's fascinating and uh, good for him. All four screen life movies. And if they can be quickly produced during the pandemic, that's, a co- that's cool. I will. I look forward to the boom. Um what else do I have here? Uh, the one other bit that I have is that Netflix, which we knew was rebooting Unsolved Mysteries, the like true crimey 90s show. And uh, we know that it's coming back Ju- July 1st, 2020. There's going to be 12 episodes. That's exciting. Um, did you watch anything this week, sir, that was not uh, psycho related? Get, Get this. I
1: went to a sort of a movie theater and saw a new movie. Oh I went God. and saw a new release called Infamous starring Bella Thorne, which was playing. I'm upstate right now at my mom's house and um, we've been up here all week and the drive-ins here are open in upstate New York. Drive-ins are pretty popular. So there is what uh, our drive-in was running Jaws with Jurassic Park and also the new release Infamous with Birds of Prey, which I've seen a couple times. Mm. So we went out. We did. Went, we went to both, uh, but I saw Infamous, which is this VOD movie that's barely getting released and is only booked at the drive-in because Universal and Judd Apatow pulled King of Staten Island from drive-in release after letting it be booked at about a hundred theaters. Why? Uh, it's it's a little murky. It sounds like it's some combination of wanting to make it legitimately VOD exclusive. Hmm. Uh, it sounds like Apatow was very agreeable to that and did not want particularly want it to play in theaters if it wasn't going to play in, like, regular theaters. And or some kind of money scuffle because Universal wanted more than they would normally get or something, or or the drive-ins wanted to give them less because it's, you know, kind of extenuating circumstances. It seemed like a pretty big move because drive-ins have been playing Trolls 2 from Universal for months. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they haven't reported box office numbers, but it presumably has made Universal some money and is also like, kind of keeping the faith on theatrical releases for a little while, while it's not really possible. Um, so Universal repaid the favor by uh, accidentally, they claim, making King of Staten Island available for booking and then rescinding it like the day before. Oh, my um, God.
0: So they just so- grabbed the only thing available.
1: Yeah, they the only new movie coming to drive-ins uh, for the next few weeks, and they said, "You know what? No, we're not going to let you do this one." Um, so that seems like a nice, reasonable thing to do. Uh, I'd already seen King of Staten Island though, so I was pleased to see a movie that I'd never even heard of called Benfamous at the drive-in. The first, like the first. How many people King were there
0: film. for the movie Infamous? Yeah, <laughs> I gotta I was there. know um how many people were there like how many um, or, cars would you say were at that that particular movie
1: yeah it's hard to tell because i mean the, so this driving is two screens the definitely the revival screen was more popular because it's such a family thing that totally. obviously more families are going to go see the spielberg movies than uh some bellathorne uh i would you know informally estimate that the crowd I, we also went to the infamous one on sunday rather than saturday which is not as big a crowd in general mm. um there was a little more of a, like, teenage shit kicker vibe <laughs> at, uh, at at Infamous than at the many families you a saw. A bunch of um, pot smoking teens. Like, lots of people in the be- the beds of pickup trucks, you know. Ooh. Of, like, a little, I mean, little freaky deep no It made me think briefly for the first time ever. Oh, it would be kind of cool to have a pickup truck because it would make going to the drive-in really easy. Yes. Um,
0: we That's about the talk. only benefit I can think of, though. Yeah. <laughs> you could haul stuff.
1: <laughs> um Yeah. Yeah, we, I'm not, you know, usually when I go to the drive-in, I sit outside, like on a blanket with friends, like kind of make it like an outdoor movie thing like we have in our New York City outdoor movie things. Yes. Uh, So I would never watched a whole double feature just in the car. Yeah, uh, what's that like? It's it's a little weird. It's a little distancing because you're watching through a windshield, which is just not the same effect as watching it, even if it's about the same distance away. Right. Um, but, you know, the car radios, it, it, this is a better probably sound system than whatever boombox I would have either rented or brought with me. Um, and the movie itself is very bad. But I was I was just excited to see a new movie. So I was it was a fun experience. What is kind it even of a, about?
0: It's it of... what
1: genre is
0: this movie? It's kind
1: of a thriller. Uh, It's kind of a Bonnie and Clyde-ish deal. Bella Thorne plays like a poor white trash girl in Florida who wants to be famous um, and hooks up with this kind of white trash dude who is like relatively level-headed for this type of movie. He's the kind of guy. It's kind of the one interesting twist the movie has going for it is that instead of like a girl being enthralled to some like super charismatic dude who takes her on this violent odyssey, She's kind of more the instigator, uh, even though he's like has a criminal past. She's kind of the one saying like, yeah, let's like rob people. Um, and and she starts documenting on his Instagram while she's robbing it. they become sort of Instagram famous. Oh, my God. Uh, it's not as kind of nasty or toxic as I thought it would be about that. You know, I kind of thought it would be like like kind of nihilistic, just offing people and and then being like, I got an I got a like for this guy I shot in the head. It's a little more measured than that, but it is not. An interesting, you know, uh, ex- exploration of those themes. It's kind of supposed to be meta that Bella Thorne is playing this woman because she herself is kind of big on Instagram more than she's big in any movies or TV shows lately. Um, she's very bad in the movie. Uh, my <laughs> wife, my wife and I were debating watching the movie in our car. we were like, she's doing the bad acting, Bella Thorne. But the guy she's playing opposite, my wife astutely pointed out, is doing less acting. And it was. we were trying to figure out which is worse in this context. He was doing a more actively terrible performance. Lots of, like, gesticulating and, like, you know, kind of going for it really hard without a lot of direction. Whereas he's just sort of no has no charisma and is really boring. And we were like, I don't know which is worse in this case. Um, but, you know, it was 95 minutes. It was not quite as terrible as I feared while not being good at all. It was the first new movie I saw in a movie theater in months, so I will take it. And we got to watch Birds of Prey after, which I quite enjoyed.
0: Nice. And then you also saw Jaws and... And Jurassic Park. Great double. I just got the Jaws 4K UHD that just came out this week. Nice. I'm excited to rewatch that. Um, all right. I don't... Let me look at my letterbox, which I should have had pulled up already. Um, nah, Psycho 3, Psycho 4... Um, oh, I watched Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a documentary, uh, a Shudder exclusive, that is about Mark Patton, the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2. and it's was about
1: like, the subtext of that movie, yeah? Yes,
0: it's about, uh, we talked about that on this podcast before at length during the Nightmare on Elm Street series on, of course, the episode about uh, Freddy's Revenge. Um, but yeah, it's about how that movie is super gay and how... Uh, th- uh, Mark Patton, you know, it's kind of coming uh, after like the AIDS fervor. And like, ha- it's kind of about how Mark Patton's career was fucked up by him being outed by this movie in a way. And it's not the most well made documentary. And it doesn't really, it, you know, it's pretty sta- uh static not that interesting uh not that well made but it's a uh, the mark patton is such a great subject and just a really likable guy and it's if you're at all interested in the subject matter of nightmare on elm street 2 you should definitely watch scream queen on shutter and with that let's jump to psycho but not psycho 4 quite yet we are going to talk about psycho 3 for at least a few minutes because i wrote down a lot of notes while watching this commentary. So Psycho 3 was written by Charles Edward Pogue, who was at the time like fresh off of writing the very hot script for The Fly, which ended up opening uh, alongside Psycho 3 in the same summer in 1986. So what a summer for Charles Edward Pogue. Um, He initially wrote two draft versions of Psycho 3 in one of these old drafts. Janet Lee returned. She was supposed to play a psychiatrist who, like, was going to be the Marion Crane double that the nun ended up being. Oh, yeah. So, but the studio wanted to cast a young hot lady and did not want to cast old Janet Lee. So <laughs> that draft went away. But the story beats of the movie are mostly the same, he says, from that draft. Besides that one point, um, Pogue says his goal was to directly connect. Psycho 3 to Psycho, not Psycho 2, because uh, he says he wanted to get back to that very and tone and do his own homage, and mostly, he just fucking hated the, the spool subplot, and he said, uh, and I quote, I don't like when you mess with the mythology, mother has to be mother, not some random aunt who comes into play, so that's kind of the axe he had to grind throughout this whole thing. And it's funny that he says that because the way it ends up manifesting in the movie is just at the last minute, the journalist character s- yells all this shit at him. And then that <laughs> undoes everything. Like that's all, that's all that ended up happening, which, you know, it's just funny because his intentions were so, I, I must fix this. Um, but that's where the exposition dump comes in, obviously, because that is what undoes all the stuff that uh, Psycho 2 did. But Pogue says that 2 is a fairly decent sequel. He had no problems with it except that the powers that be um, had them suddenly ramp up the blood quota, which is something they ran into on this movie as well. And he said, we were in the era of the dead teenager movie where it wasn't enough to kill a kid. You had to see the impaling, you had to see the liver coming out of the back. (laughs) So his intention was to go back to that Hitchcockian tone where everything was implied through photography and you couldn't show anything his entire intention was to bring it back to that. And that's how it's played throughout the entire script. But the version we saw obviously is not like that. There's tons of kills inserted in there and that's exactly what they were. They were definitely inserted into it. Uh, So the studio wanted those more visceral kills thrown in and ultimately clearly writer, lowly writer Charles Pogue did not win that fight. (laughs) Um, But he liked the idea of Norman not being the only lost soul. You know, all three characters in this movie the Jeff Fahey character, the nun, and him are all lost souls who have lost their direction and found themselves at Bates Motel somehow. He also wanted to show a love story with the two fractured people between the confused nun and Norman, two people that are trying so hard to be good and do the right thing, but the circumstances keep working in their way, uh, working against them all along the line. Uh, I think I said this last time, but Pogue originally wanted the Jeff Fahey character to be a red herring, and like I think in the Janet Lee version he was going to be the killer. He can't really remember that, though. But he says, he says he has files and boxes with every outline, every idea on a napkin. But he didn't think to look at that before they interviewed him for the commentary track. <laughs> um, but Dwayne, yeah, was the killer in one early draft. But it was never written, apparently, just like a pitch outline uh, phase idea. Um, he was asked why he made the movie so religious. And he said right off the bat, you know, Maureen is a nun, as God is brought into it. He, said he doesn't really know. He doesn't really recall why. But he does say that the one thing he had when he like started to write the script was the idea of the mother going in of mother going in to kill the nun and her seeing the image of the Virgin Mary. And he says I couldn't even begin to tell you where that came from. I'm not a religious man. I'm not Christian or anything. He just had that idea and then kind of ran with that. So not not a great answer, but it's interesting. It's like almost <laughs> divine intervention or something, yeah. right? Um, but he, you know, he liked the the, he liked the idea of a character being hemmed in, regarded as a pariah in society. So he just really liked the whole god thing. But the character or the actress herself wrote the opening line of "There is no god." She like thought that was a good way to start the movie, and I think it's a great line. interestingly the opening scene that pogue wrote was the one that introduces norman that happens like i'd say i don't know 10 to 15 minutes after the opening in this movie which opens with if you remember the convent stuff and like the the bell tower uh Mm -hmm. so the original opening scene was the scene with norman and the birds and like stuffing the birds and all that stuff but perkins changed the order later i think it was a good call but the writer doesn't seem to agree with that um Polk says what appeals to him about this and the fly were that the protagonists were also your antagonists. They had like the whole Jekyll and Hyde aspect of it, which I thought was really interesting that like I never really considered that. Like that is very much two, two things he did in the same, same year. Uh, he's of the opinion that all great horror stems from two things, either emotional or sexual repression. And that sense of repression is why he wrote that on into it. Um, I already mentioned that psycho came out the same summer as the fly. This is really funny. He mentioned that he remembers an LA paper calling psycho three and the fly, the two best love stories of the summer. And yeah. nowhere in the article did that guy connect that, uh, this dude wrote them both. He just <laughs> happened to put to pair them together on their own, which I thought was hilarious. Um, you're going to love this. Free thinking. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Um, so the writer Charles Poe wrote a scene that, uh, had Tony eating candy corn in mm. in close up, and you watched Norman bite off the yellow top and oh. then the white part, and then the orange part piece by piece. Yes. <laughs> and he says he doesn't know if Perkins shot that, but he was mad. he didn't see it in the movie. Yeah. I'm mad now that it's
1: not in the movie. I did appreciate, and I forgot to mention when we talked about this first, that it does bring back my my favorite my second favorite character in Psycho the bag of loose candy corn that Norman munches on. He is eating it in the movie, but we don't see the close-up, which would have made it a thousand times better. And now I'm mad that it, was, it wasn't yeah, there. Yeah,
0: I, I think by the fourth movie, that bag of candy corn was at the top of the call sheet. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was in every movie with Norman. Uh, so he mentioned that he didn't meet Cronenberg until after The Fly had been out for a month and was a huge hit. And just how that was a much different experience from doing Psycho 3. And he says, you know... His producers always try to keep him in the loop on movies, but often the writer just writes and the director goes off and does their thing, like David Cronenberg. Basically, Cronenberg takes the script, rewrites it for himself, and then goes off and does it and makes his movie and has no input from the writer. But he, uh, Charles Polk says, sometimes you're available to go to a set, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're welcome on the set, sometimes you're not. Uh, but for Psycho, he had more day-to-day involvement. He was always welcome on the Universal backlot. He said he would go there at 10 a.m. every day, watch for a couple hours. They would break for lunch. He would watch the dailies, and he would go home. Sounds pretty like a pretty cool gig, honestly. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the whole idea, I just wrote down, we have sympathy for Norman, we don't want anything bad to happen to him, and how the journalist is so fucking annoying, trying to just boost to find a story for herself. Um, Pogue always believed that if you're going to do a sequel, you have to, and then he trailed off and said, it's what can I bring to it? Can I legitimately add to it without diminishing it? You always have to go back and respect the source material. Uh, he was worried about the stigma of it being a third entry. Oh, they're just ripping it off again. But he thought he was surprised by the positive reception. Uh, we noted that Ebert was a big fan of this movie. Um, this is great uh, pre Psycho Four talk. Uh, I'll say that before we get into Psycho Four. Actually, I'll skip ahead. Um, this is an alternate Psycho Four that they pitched that didn't happen. Um, uh, so Charles Pogue's background, the writer. He started as a theater actor and came out to Hollywood. Uh, and he felt like he was starting all over again. He wrote a sword and sorcery epic that got optioned just right away when he got there, but it never got made. Uh, and then he got an agent and that's how he ended up becoming a writer. And he found it easier to live as a writer than an actor in Hollywood. Like he just quickly got a gig, lived off the option money for a year. And then like he went to England, he wrote two Sherlock Holmes movies for cable, uh, in England they were well received and that became his calling card into the big studios. Um, And that's how he ended up somehow getting this gig. He says his favorite horror movie is more of like an Island of Lost Souls type thing. He's not really a big horror fan. He's really proud of writing that scene with the girl gets killed on the toilet. He's talking about how, you know, where are you most vulnerable? He's just really, really proud of it. Um, He says, you know, the most effective scenes in this movie are not the gore scenes. It's very clear that he's pissed off about the studio demands. Um, He describes every kill scene just as so much more eloquently written. As displayed. Like, honestly, they went, they went, it seems like he went through great lengths to like write out every kill without showing the actual kill. Cause he purposefully did not want a blade going into a body until the end of the movie when he has that conversation with his, or like when he basically, when he kills the mom's corpse, you know, and he stabs oh. it with the knife. He wanted that to be a big moment. And it still happens, but it's not a big moment because he's already been stabbing a bunch of people. <laughs> um,. The studio, oh my God. So the ending, you know how we definitely joked about the ending and how it negates everything that came before it, like with him holding the hand at the end. So the studio literally came to him and said they wanted a quote, Brian De Palma moment. And what they meant by that was like a jolt at the end of the movie, like at the end of Carrie, like when the hand came out of the grave. So he was trying to think like, what could I do? We can kill the reporter. We can kill the priest. What can I do? So he's sticking on his feet. What can we do that won't ruin the integrity of the movie? And the movie is Norman's journey to the light as described by the writer. Um, And the ending that he wrote was, you know, even if he's locked up forever, he has returned to his sanity. And there's like some, there's like a happy endingness there a little bit. And he didn't want to stop or bog down the film with exposition. Oh, that's another note. I was like, he didn't want to stop or bog down the film with exposition. So that's why he has it has a woman say it while she's backing away from a knife the entire time. Um, (laughs) Uh, but yeah he says I'll, I'll be free I'll finally be free and that was supposed to be the last shot and then it would pan up to the mom's to the window and there would be an empty rocker going back and forth so it was this kind of great final image that would have showed that Norman even though he's going back to the mental hospital is truly cured you know and is uh-huh. like not insane anymore uh, but then to get the Brian De Palma twist all he did was he said he wrote this because it was so dumb he didn't think they would take it and he wrote in, like, basically, he wrote in that scene with the hand and him stroking it. And then he did that, like, grim skull overlay smile at the end, like the original Psycho did. Uh-huh. And then he turned it in. And then, like, he came to see it in theaters later. And he's like, fuck, they, they kept that scene with the hand at yeah. the end. <laughs> he told, like, he said, this won't work. They'll cut it, whatever. And they and yeah. So he that whole thing with him holding his, pulling out uh, his mother's hand from his coat is a final image that truly negates everything that came before it. It's like, I'll finally be free. Oh, just kidding. I'm not. He's still crazy. So <laughs> that is insane. Th- uh, that's all my notes except for the... Okay, so this was... Before we talk about what Psycho 4 actually is, um, he was approached from Universal, I think before this even came out, for, to do a treatment for 4. And he called it a brilliant outline. And then he goes on to say, here's what it's about. Uh, so Tony Perkins goes back to the nuthouse... And he has some radical therapy with some uh, like psychiatrist woman, who is using some mute girl who's also at this facility to like role play as Norman's mother, and is putting him in like all these weird shower situations and sexual situations, just like making him relive all this stuff. Anyway, ultimately the nut house burns down, and Tony and the mute girl, Tony, uh, Norman and the mute girl <laughs> escape, and they return to Bates Motel. And this is where I think it gets really like fun. Uh, the hotel has since been bought by like an entrepreneur who's turning it into like a haunted horror weekend mystery getaway weekend things. <laughs> that's based on the real murders and history of the hotel. Uh, so the premise there is the actor who plays Norman Bates ends up quitting like the at the same time that Norman arrives with uh, the girl. So then basically the movie is a whole hotel full of eccentric weird people just getting murdered. And it's kind of a a mystery of who's doing it. And he called it a very funny, dark, weird comedy. And he says he was paid very generously to come up with that outline. And that when Psycho 4 eventually happened, he threw that outline at whoever was doing it, but they went in another direction. And Polk says he also famously wrote the first ever script for John Carter of Mars in 1987. And he says he never saw the Disney version. And um, he says his script has a lot of cult status with fans of the John Carter, uh, I guess, source material. I don't know what it is. Comic book? I think original like pulp novels. Pulp novels. There we go. So that <laughs> isn't what Psycho 4 is. Um, what <laughs> is Psycho 4? In a more popular call-in show direction. <laughs> yes. So I think I described this movie on my letterbox. I ain't to let you talk in a second, but I will just set it up. Uh, as I think I described this movie. Oh God, that's my second review because I watched it twice. I said, (laughs) the setup of what if Norman Bates was on a very lengthy phone call did not quite work for me. (laughs) Uh, It's a very long 96 minute movie. Um, I would say it's a textbook case of a prequel nobody asked for, Um, but I will give it some credit for being so weirdly horny and like incestuous and weird. Um, But I just don't care about every detail of Norman's childhood, but I will say it's pretty competently shot and directed, maybe even more so than Perkins uh, debut on the last one. Uh, But I think the material is just mostly boring. And I think it looks better than most TV movies. The flashback structure just really sucks all the tension out of it. And the movie has no real driving force. Um, And I think the interactions with Norman, Norman Veer on comedy, which is like, I think a choice. And I think he made that choice. Um, I just don't know if it works. I think it did work better for me the second time I just watched it with commentary. But that is my quick review of that movie. Please tell me what you think. Nora Bates, this is your life.
1: Um, yeah, I... Like, I mean, look. I was well, I was going into this with an open mind because I enjoyed Psycho 2 and 3 much more than I hoped to enjoy them. Uh, this did kind of feel like the breaking point for me where, where yeah, as you say, it goes really hard on this origin story stuff, which to me, like what I wrote my is that it's, it's like someone pitching, say this Norman Bates fellow. I think he's got kind of a mommy issue. Don't, have you ever noticed that before? I yeah. think we should uh, explore that a little bit. And, and inexplicably whoever was in charge of this said, Oh yes. Tell me more. As if this hadn't been explored in a much more evocative way by movies that don't have like endless scenes about it. Um, this movie has some long ass scenes too, uh, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> uh, I mean, just in terms of scenes that go on much longer than I ever, just to feel extremely drawn out. Um, yeah, I think it, it kind of, if I enjoyed Psycho 3, having kind of a seedier and I think more, you know, kind of expressive use of color that, that kind of makes it interesting to look at and, and kind of have, has some weird, cool imagery in it, this one kind of goes into this weird gothic not really in the imagery although it's sure i guess it's it's fine in terms of just technical whatever but it kind of pushes the story more into real gothic sweaty territory that i just did not find very convincing or interesting or as you say there's there's no tension in this at all um perkins does what he can and there are some interesting ideas that we'll get into there are definitely some moments that i thought were really interesting and cool totally but my general feeling about this movie was that they finally made a bad one this is a bad psycho movie um it kind of yeah i, I kind of felt bad for perkins doing it because he's like giving it his all as usual and it's just this movie that feels like it's one too many you know one too many trips into the microwave to reheat reheat this shit like i <laughs> Um, you know and not not a complete loss but definitely the the only one i'd be solidly thumbs down on so far
0: for sure um and you're gonna feel even worse for tony perkins when you find out that he really 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 wanted to direct this movie and universal after three was uh, a box office flop said hell no (laughs) so not only did he have to like begrudgingly still star in this movie because he needed the money and like it's kind of his career kind of turned to this this point where he had to play norman bates if he wanted to like be anything he was just kind of seen as that character so um he not (laughs) he was turned down a directing gig for the movie but because he's the star of it he still had to sit through it and then as mick garris puts on the documentary or on the commentary like how, t- Tony must have been wondering, and as Mick Garris made it clear, he was vocal about it. How did the yeah. person who directed Critters 2 get Psycho 4? <laughs> because Mick Garris was not like a really good name or anything. He was like a TV horror guy, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's really, I-, I can only imagine what it was like for Perkins to be on the set of this particular movie when he just directed one of these I thought it went pretty well and, and like it did go pretty well, so to speak, the movie's not bad, but it wasn't a hit for universal universal wanted to go to a different direction so much so that they like refused to let him do it. And Mick Garris man describes like, he was pretty nice about it, but it's clear that he and Tony butt heads the entire time. And anytime Mick had a note, they had a 40 minute conversation about it because, uh, <laughs> because Perkins just wanted him to explain it. He said, that Mick would tell him how to act, and then he would, instead of instead of just changing how he would do it, he would say, well, why? Why that? Why this? Why would I do that? And then he, at the end, he would say, well, Mick, why don't you do it? And yeah. then he's like, well, I'm not acting in the movie, Tony. Yeah. Like, so it sounded like a super not fun set. Um, but yeah, this movie is definitely the first one in the franchise that I don't, that I would say is a thumbs down, but... I did go from, like, thinking it's, like, a two-star movie to thinking it's, like, a two-and-a-half-star movie after watching <laughs> the commentary, which is, you know, damning with fame praise. But there are just so many little things or, like, ideas that this movie does that are so unsettling that, like, th- it'll stick with me even if the movie around it's boring. Like, all the Norma... Norman, the, like, eroticism but the fact that, like, every every instance of her being erotic with her son is followed up by her being violent with him. And like, it's just like you, they do a good job of like showing you how a person like a Norman Bates would get, would, would come to be. But I just don't know there's something uncomfortable and maybe even uncanny about it. There's something weird. I mean, we just don't see incest on film that much. That's not porn film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. And for
1: me, a lot of that stuff verges on the kind of over-explanatory like, You know, again, we'll get to how did the
0: shark from Jaws get so mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's not that I don't think uh, Bates is a dimensional and interesting character, I do think he is. Um, but there, I think some of this was just perhaps better left to intimations and maybe even dialogue rather than showing us at length. uh, In in some cases, it's they certainly hired a good actress to play Norma, but I just didn't feel like they. Olivia Hussey like of more Romeo and Juliet fame. Yeah, Olivia Hussey was also what people will know, horror fans will know from Black Christmas, uh, the original. Oh, yes, uh, of course. And she's, you know, she's giving it her all, but it just doesn't really feel like a match with, I hate to be like all Mr. Series continuity, and I know that... This movie was sort of half intended as a not really, it's, you know, they don't really say one way or the other about Psycho 2 or 3, but it yes. kind of feels like it's
0: ignoring those. This movie does uh, feel like it's ignoring 2 and 3. It could just be a sequel to the first one and it would make sense.
1: Yeah, and that's not a, that's not a bad thing uh, on its own, but I do feel like it's it doesn't really feel like a match with either the first one or the sequels, so it just kind of feels like this odd movie out, and not in that fun Alien resurrection or alien three sort of way.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I she says on the commentary, because she's on the commentary along with Henry Thomas and Mick Garris, she says that she just straight up can't do an American accent. So she just didn't do one. And like, Mick, you know, it's just funny to me that they cast this British lady or whatever yeah. she is as She's uh, I think
1: she's from she is British, but she's was born in um, I wanna say, I don't know if it was Brazil, somewhere in South America. So oh, she's wow. got like an interesting sort of like mix of accents and
0: American is not in there no and I mean their explanation was as simple as saying well Bates is an English name so we just went with it um Uh and I mean I guess it's fine but I mean we've heard her voice through I mean throughout the other movie it definitely wasn't British right (laughs) no it didn't seem British to me (laughs) uh yeah so uh, another thing that's interesting about this movie um can you isn't it unfathomable to think that the same person who wrote the original 1960 Psycho wrote this one too?
1: Yes, it's such a weird, and Nor- like that's that's such a weird. I just would be fascinated. Maybe you know, have know some of this from the commentary, like what the process was that had this guy who adapted the uh, the original novel into Hitchcock's movie. What process led him to okay? Here's what here's my take on where Norman is 30 years later. They don't and, they don't touch yeah. on it, but I need to know. Yeah. (laughs) And there's some really interesting and that is where some of the interesting stuff come. Some of the interesting conceits of this movie, I think, come just from that. The idea of someone approaching it anew after a 30 year break, essentially. Uh, I don't think it's enough, but I do think that you can see, oh, this this might have been a really interesting sort of, you know, contemporary style. 30 years later, ignoring all the other sequels uh, follow up. But it it doesn't doesn't get there.
0: For sure. And I'm about to read just like a quick description of this movie. And I'm doing that because I think when you put it out on paper, I think it sounds actually compelling, more compelling than the movie is. So half of the film shows a 58 year old Norman dealing with a present time crisis, his pregnant wife. The other half is a series of flashbacks showing the key events that precede the original Psycho uh, and centered around the one character whom Kitchcock never showed except as a stuffed cadaver, Mrs. Norman, Mrs. Norma Bates. The device that ties the two halves together is an Oprah Winfrey-like radio talk show hostess discussing the topic "boys who kill their mothers." But wait, let me just pause to read the text you sent me because I said the same text to my friend. The book is not is, is called "Mother Killers: The Boys Who Kill Their Mothers," which is like such like a sitcom joke of a title. I can't believe it's in this movie, but maybe that's him yeah. going for comedy. I don't know. Anyway, Norman Bates calls into the program and is challenged by the contrasting attitudes of the hostess and her guest, uh, Dr. Richmond. So, I, I guess what I'm saying, what, what I find most compelling there is the idea that the movie is interested in the least, which is the idea that a 58-year-old Norman Bates is has a wife and she's pregnant and he's worried that he is spawning a monster. Yes, yes. That, That's for sure
1: the most interesting thing in the that movie. That
0: is so fucking interesting and uh, this description puts more into it than the movie does. Like the movie, <laughs> yes, that, that is the ultimate reveal of him being on the phone with the fucking radio show the whole time is eventually they gets to the fact that, yes, I have a wife and yes, I'm concerned about this spawn that I've made. And and I think the premise is like his his idea when he's calling in is like, I'm talking th- you through this as I'm about to kill my wife who's pregnant because I can't bear to, gr- to raise this monster because I know that I will, because of the trauma his mom passed down to him through the movie that we see, um, he's worried that he will then pass on that trauma to his child, which is a totally fair thing for a guy who had that upbringing. Um, And yeah, that is such an interesting ripe for a great movie idea. And I would say it's about 10% of this movie
1: yeah it's it's they really kind of drop the ball on it it's kind of a weird stagey setup to have him calling into a radio talk show where one of it just it is involves a lot of more acro- like stupid plot acrobatics than you need for such a kind of has a kind of a simple theatrical style setup like this could be a play you know he that part of it him he's on the phone with this uh, with these characters and to the point where they they
0: have a... It's like this apparently six-hour radio show or something where they... Yeah, long form. That. It's the same radio show that Dennis Miller has in Joe Dirt.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was thinking, I haven't <laughs> seen... I've only seen parts of Joe Dirt, but I was like like a dirtbag. I was like, this is the Joe Dirt structure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where, Hashtag dirtbag. Yeah. Dirt bag. yeah. <laughs> CCH Pounder, a wonderful character actress, uh, plays the host. And she has on her show as a guest, the guy who wrote this book, this stupidly titled book... And who opens with like, actually my daughter was killed by her son and the bitch deserved it, which it isn't really ever explored in any kind like, again, it's, it's something where you can't really tell if the, if the movie is going for black comedy or if it's just like a kind of clueless kind of finality or something. But, uh, it's just, so Norman calls into the show and they kind of drop everything, including the other guest who has to go home because he's on the under curfew. And just like, we're like, Oh, okay. We've, we had this author on, but let's talk to this rando who could be making this up for hours. Yeah. Um, to the point where they're like begging him to call back in when he hangs up the phone. That's a, that's a minor detail, but it just kind of makes the whole thing feel a lot more artificial and kind of with rather than just kind of cutting to the most interesting stuff, which is Norman Bates sort of reaching out anonymously to someone on the phone who's sh- he's listened to. And uh, then you do gr- the way you gradually find out that he has a wife. You don't find that out right away. You do see him in sort of a domestic looking kitchen, but he's alone and it's late at night. And then you find out he has a wife who's working late. And then you further find out that the wife is pregnant that I, even the way those are paced out, I thought was really interesting, but it's, it's uh, it knocks up against all these endless you know, chronologically scrambled like origin of Norman Bates' killing. And even more so, you talk about Psycho 3, that, that a lot of those kills are sort of studio-mandated shoehorned in. Here, they do something even weirder, even though it kind of makes more sense nominally, which is they scramble up the chronology of this to give you kills at proper intervals, or what they seem to think are proper intervals. Yeah. Rather, I, which is, I, I don't mind, a, you know, it's kind of an interesting idea to have like moments from Norman Bates' life, but it really is just well, we're mostly going to show his relationship with his mother as it develops when he's a teenager, but we're going to skip ahead a few times to times where he killed people Yeah, so, that you, so you can see some people getting killed. That's, and, I picked up on that the, the, the second movie, time. Yeah, and, and the movie that's trying to be a little more psychological about this stuff and it really tap, tries to tap into his anguish, then having this ridiculously tracked, uh, you know, d- drawn-out scene where he eventually stabs a nubile teenager... Uh, who is, is sure to doff her clothes very
0: willingly and the like, horniest girl on earth, yeah, the
1: horniest girl on earth, who is like coming on to Norman Bates like nobody's business, uh, is is not a real you know th- that that to me is like encapsulates what's kind of lame about this movie. There's this opportunity to say like okay, and maybe the maybe the TV show Bates Motel does this, I don't know, but because I, I haven't seen it, but like a teenage Norman Bates and this girl likes him, and she, even though he's kind of strange and kind of withdrawn and trying to have like a normal teenage like you know. Kind of horny hookup, but the movie has so little interest in the girl that it really kind of starts feeling contemptuous. It's just she's just being thrown to Norman Bates to to kill her, and it also like doesn't really make that much sense in the context of this just the, of the story. Like, so this girl got stabbed to death in Norman's house. <laughs> Uh, And there was no, like, you know, know, it just sort of- No investigation, no this,
0: no that, yeah. Yeah, it just sort of retcons an extra murder when he's at a pretty young age. Well, they do it a second time with a second victim, and that time I had to rewind it to to catch the line that they transition with, because I was like, where the fuck is this coming from? Like, it was just so out of nowhere. And then it literally is Perkins leading into a flashback by saying, I don't remember how she got in my car. (laughs) yeah and i was like Uh, wow that is a next level like we don't have any explanation for when this is happening
1: well and that's the thing the thing is the interesting thing is how she gets into the car i mean i know (laughs) the interesting thing is how he knows this girl from school and why she likes him but they skip over that to get to the killing and it just makes it all kind of nonsensical and slashery and it's not even like a good suspenseful slashery it's just like a girl kind of perfunctory yeah yeah she's like lying on a bed naked waiting to be stabbed which is just not that that when that's when it kind of starts to feel like a snuff kind of thing instead of like
0: yeah and to, and full to, or disturbing the scary. and to yeah. answer your question about bates motel which i just started watching this week i'm on episode like five bates motel is basically this same idea of like norman bates is young how did he get to be this way Norman, uh, uh, the Bates Motel twist on it, I guess, is that that show takes place in modern day, uh, not Uh. 1960. But the general idea is the same, and I'm pretty sure it actually builds to a Marion Crane reveal in season four or something. But uh, Bates Motel essentially is Norman the beginning, and it is a much better approximation of it than this uh, so far. I've been told that that show gets better every season. I am very much enjoying uh, season one, which is basically a much different depiction of norma bates uh she's played by vera farmiga she uh is involved in some grisly stuff but it's kind of to protect her son it's definitely not there's there's not yet there's none of that sexual tension between the two of them that Uh this movie is exclusively about (laughs) and like so so this movie has those multiple narratives So, it starts with the radio show. We cut back to him and his mom. There are mostly flashbacks that show them having rough times. There's one flashback that shows them on a picnic table or a picnic blanket having a great time. So, we see the Norma narrative through flashbacks. And the narrative for Norma is that, you know, she clearly has this loving relationship with her son. Almost too loving. She's very... There's no distance between her and Norman, like she treats norman as if he's like a lover almost but then it gets to a point where so basically there's this one scene that i guess is the centerpiece of the whole fucking thing you could say i think mcgarris even does say that where they're rolling on the floor together and she's tickling him and then he gets a boner and she flips the fuck out dresses him like a woman and says you're a girl you're not a boy um which uh, didn't that feel like loaded yeah (laughs) yes (laughs) Um,
1: yeah, it's, well, it's also just like such kind of dime story kind of it it, it like, I I guess this is 1990. So I get that it's not going to be the most uh, up to date on like, on kind of, you know, gender dysmorphia or or anything like that. But it's in such a like, rushed and sort of dime story kind of like, oh, she doesn't like his erection. She tries to tell him he doesn't shouldn't have a penis. So she tells him he's a girl and literally dresses him in girls clothes. And that Ooh. turns him into a murderer. <laughs> it just, you know, like yeah, totally. It, it's it has a kind of a, alarmist edge, and also just a weird oversimplification of like, where, you know, it's like, oh, okay, sh- this is literally something his mom made him do. You know, that that just kind of takes any kind of sense of mystery or, you know, I think the movies even movies
0: agency have, out of it. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah there's like it, it gives them it, there's some leeway on whatever kind of misunderstanding they have about how these some of these gender roles work. By the vagueness or sort of the, you know, what's left off screen, but by putting so much of it on screen in this one, they open themselves up to be very wrong. I mean, you know, not even, I'm not speaking, obviously, as a psychologist or anything, but right. just in, in terms of they open themselves up to a kind of clumsiness that the earlier movies, just by dint of not going there, didn't have to deal with.
0: Right. Um, and just to talk about the narrative, which is extremely out of order. Um, basically Norman's father dies from like bee stings at six.
1: (laughs) My girl style. Yeah. He
0: dies. My girl style. Um, like Chomsky style. What's her name? Anna Chomsky. Yeah. Anna (laughs) Chomsky. Yeah. Um, so which that leaves Norman with Norma exclusively. Uh, there's a weird scene at his funeral where his mother is tickling him at the funeral and then he laughs, and the second he laughs out loud, she slaps him in the face, which is the first of many times where she will do something that is sexual to him, tease him, and then punish him when he, you know, uh, acts on it, so to speak. Um, So she takes out her frustrations on Norman throughout the movie. When business at the hotel is bad, she yells at him. She at one point screams at him that uh, you know, I should have aborted you. Essentially, she's like, you basically almost killed me when you came out of me. I should have killed you when I had the chance. Um, she, you know, they're basically things are fine, ish, until she becomes engaged to this like douchebag guy named Chet, <laughs> who comes over and tries to like wrestle with Nor or pun- a box with Norman outside the house, and um, you know, Norman is jealous and uh and Chet's abuse. Chet's kind of abusive. Norman does what I think we know he's going to do, which is he poisons their iced tea, um, at which point that's when he steals and preserves his mother's corpse. This all happens at the very end, I feel like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and that's how he develops a split personality in which he becomes his mother to suppress his guilt of murdering her. Whenever this personality takes over, it drives him to dress in his clothes, put on a wig, and talk to himself in, his voice, uh, in her voice. As mother, he murders two local women who try to seduce him during their stay. Just... The, the the kills in this movie, as you said, they're so thrown in, but, like, they're all thrown in in such a way that's, like, every girl wants to fuck Norman Bates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is so out of control that, like, all these women are just throwing themselves at him, and he just can't handle it. Um, In the present day, all that shit's happening at the radio. It all builds up to uh, Norman's wife coming home, right? And then uh, he... Doesn't he try to kill her but his wife then tells him like no it's it's it was your own choice to go insane and do the things you did
1: yeah he also brings her he has her meet her meet him at his mom's old house for 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 um,
0: uh for the cinematic third act
1: yes it's uh, so he he goes to meet her there because he has something important to tell her and he plans to murder her yes
0: yeah but when he gets there she like tries to talk him out of it she reassures him that their kid will not be a monster with their guidance. And as he realizes the truth to having freedom of choice, he drops the knife, his wife forgives him. And then this is where I'm like, what? Then Norman, then just like, uh, he, he impulsively sets, excuse me, he impulsively sets the house on fire. I'm assuming because that's like where all of his unhappiness began. And that's where he, you know, he's trying to like, it's like a symbol set set on set it on fire to let yourself free so right. as he tries to escape the flames he uh there's this whole sequence where like he's hallucinating and he sees all the victims of the or the people he's killed and his mother's and then eventually uh her corpse norman barely flees the burning house alive he and his wife leave the next day he happily proclaims he's free indicating that his mother will never haunt his mind and drive him insane again but then the wooden doors of the house cellar close and the rocking chair that continues to rock at which point we hear a mother scream and then a baby crying, I believe.
1: Yeah, the mother screams to Norman, let me out, you know, right the instant, whatever. And then there's an, and after, as the, there's a cut to black, there's
0: a, there's the sound of a baby crying. Which could only lead us to believe that, uh, their in yeah. production yeah. at one point was psycho babies. <laughs> it's
1: such a weird, like, this is, that's, uh, this is another moment that really captures what I don't like about this movie um it sort of the way that psycho 3 goes back on its on its hard one ending this one doesn't go as far back on it but also does it in such a weird clumsy way where okay fine you you hear the mother's voice after he renounces her and leaves so that sort of that can maybe symbolize that like the mother's going to live on in our memory or his memory in, in terms of all the terrible stuff that happened, but she's locked away in that house now. And uh, although the house is sort of burnt down, but the chair is still, whatever it's, it's ambiguous, I guess. And that it's, that's a little unsatisfying, but okay. And then they have the, the baby crying, which is supposed to be chilling as you go to black, but like, I just maybe it's just like as a as a parent, I'm just like, oh yeah, the baby's crying. Ooh, scary! Like <laughs> spooky. All, all, yeah, see, that baby must be fucked up because it's crying. Yeah, babies cry all the time about everything. Like <laughs> the, the baby's just hungry. So, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, it's like it just felt like a weird kind of cheat. Like, oh, we're, we got to leave them with some kind of a cheat. Yeah, they need a That's, Brian uh,
0: De Palma moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it fails even more spectacularly than three in terms of doing your Brian De Palma moment. In fact, this movie has a very good opportunity to do a Carrie style, gotcha dream sequence postscript. Um, and they don't, <laughs> they just, just say, the uh, a baby's crying. Isn't that spooky? And I was like, <laughs> I was just watching that going, no, it's not fucking spooky at all. Like anyone who's ever seen a baby has lived through a baby crying. And like, I don't know. I just found that really, I, and I wouldn't say just dis- distasteful at all so much. It's just like stupid. Like, yeah the then this is after really enjoying the idea of like he's really something that terrifies Norman even more than his mother or what the stuff that he's done is the feeling that he's going to pass that along to a child and the movie as you say is just so determined to skip over that stuff and then just kind of have the have his wife talk him out of it it's not even really clear to me in the movie i mean she does make reference to having be aware of what he's done in the past but it's not even really clear how she feels about that. I mean, obviously she loves him. I mean, it's, it's the same as like you say, everyone else, every other female character in the movie, the wife also just inexplicably thinks Norman's a hottie and is willing to be put put up with occasionally almost being murdered uh, to be with him. And it's just like such a weird, it's not like that's not the last straw for her. You like, or anything like that. She just like treats him with compassion and understanding shortly after he was like about to murder her with a knife and her unborn child with a knife. Um, so I just found all of that, like, ugh. I just yeah. Was, yeah. It, it, it kind of takes everything that's interesting about the movie and sort of when it brings it to the fore, it says, just kidding, we have nothing to
0: say about yeah. this good night. I want to <laughs> and- say, like, I want to say Joseph Stefano wrote all the cool stuff about Norman Bates, um dealing with having a spawn and then some other idiot wrote the rest but that doesn't <laughs> seem to be true like i think stefano wrote this thing maybe he was and you know just didn't care that much i don't know what it was but there's just such a disconnect between that idea and like what the movie ends up putting on display you know what i mean because i think that yeah. like again on paper if you were to say this movie is about norman bates uh coming to terms with his uh the fact that his child might be like him and like through and through that we see how his mom treated him as a kid and like why he's so fucked up i think that sounds so great and i think that is probably what bates motel the show is and like it's just crazy that this movie kind of botches that really it seems like a layup to me and like yeah. it was there they just they had it but they just yeah. focus on all the wrong things yeah Yeah, uh, i'm just gonna there's some highlights i have from the commentary he says that he said he wanted to set his own visual style. He says that memory is more colorful than reality, which is why the color in every flashback was so exaggerated. Like an Italian film, like Bava. is what he said he was uh-huh. going for. And I do think this movie has technical as technically like it looks better than it is because it, it's directed better than it's scripted, I guess is, is well, what I'm trying it's to certainly
1: say. if you consider what a TV movie
0: generally looked like yes. in 1990, it's, this is, uh, this is definitely several cuts above that. Definitely. Um, he wanted the complete contrast to Hitchcock's black and white with that color, very oversaturated. He says, I don't know why anybody didn't think to use the Psycho Musical score in two and three. It was the first thing I thought to do, (laughs) of course, (laughs) use the Bernard Herrmann. Was this what when did Cape Fear come out? Was it 90 as well or 89? It was was 91. It was about just about a year after this one. Uh, I was going to say, I thought maybe they uh, saw that and were inspired, but I guess that's Uh not true. Um, I guess three was just ripping off Psycho 4. Yeah, it's totally true. Um, So this was done for the division of Universal called MTE. It was made for Showtime, as I said. They shot for four weeks in Orlando at Universal Backlot. This is before Universal Orlando opened. Actually, it was as they were building it and soft opening the theme park. So what happened was, the production of Psycho 4 became an attraction at the opening of Universal Orlando, oh, which cute. which was helpful for this for uh, for Universal because you know what ride they have there that was opening uh, an ET ride, and you know who's in Psycho Four, Henry Thomas. Oh so-
1: yeah, you know what I should say, Henry Thomas. I thought you know sort of matches Anthony Perkins both in terms of physicality and also in terms of doing a good job in a movie that is not worthy of his his work I think he's quite good in this movie even Olivia Hussey who I like a lot I don't think is just hitting the right note for Norman's mother Uh, I think she's just giving this overheated like southern gothic style performance that just doesn't
0: they just never quite it feels like like, it's in a play or something it just feels overwrought I don't know it
1: is It's very overwrought it's very kind of overly teased out I think she's a great she's very good it just doesn't it's she's not good in this but Henry Thomas, you know, he does a pretty credible job as young Norman Bates. I, I wish the material was better, but I just wanted to say, I kind of forgot about that. He's he's
0: good. Little E.T. kid does some nice work in this. He had just graduated high school four months before this. He's 18 at the time. Um, Perkins told Henry Thomas to make it his own and take the reins and go for it, which was his way of saying, Tony didn't really give a shit to, to instruct me. <laughs> he did not give me deeper instructions than that. Uh, so young Norman Bates never existed before this, so that's kind of the first time this this character existed, and that was exciting for Mick garris a chance to see the character before and during the psychological breakdown that it had. That had to have happened at one point. Um, the movie was shot, as I said, in in four six-day weeks in the middle of June and July, nineteen ninety. Very, 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 very hot. Um, obviously, before this, mother was only a shadow and voice. So, like this, is the first time norma's is a real character um she thought norma should be schizophrenic and bipolar she loves life but she's just insane she has a deep love for him but she's also deeply disappointed in him she said she didn't do any research because she lived with someone who was bipolar and that she just took all their mannerisms and that's what informed her performance which is crazy Um, (laughs) like she's like there's that scene where she's just going apeshit when he's spying on her which i think is a pretty good scene actually because it's like he's looking through the peephole and it's just her going crazy
1: Oh, yeah, I love that you, you are prompted to think
0: that he's seen some kind of sex stuff yes. and it's just her like wrecking shit. That was very good. That's a yeah, good moment. That is a good moment. Um, yeah, for some shots uh, of dead mother, Garris used the dummy for the corpse, sometimes used a live actress to make it more ambiguous. Mick Garris had worked with Henry Thomas on a hour long horror flick, one of those master of horrors thing called chocolate. I've never seen it. They talked about it a little bit. The first kill is constructed like Hitchcock's, but it's an ultra technicolor, they said. Oh, the orgy of fireworks and blood, like when he kills that girl and it just cuts the fireworks. He even says, rather than semen, it's blood everywhere. Thanks. (laughs) Um, During that scene, uh, Henry Thomas mishandled the knife and cut his hand so badly that they had to go to the ER and uh, get stitches and that it was the first week of production. Uh, And that happened because Henry Thomas is left-handed, but he had to use his right because Uh canonically that's correct for Norman. (laughs) So he was acting too hard. The knife slid up his hand when he was stabbing the girl because he was stabbing a box, a balsa wood box that was full of blood that was replicating like going in and out of a rib cage, And I guess it got stuck and thus his hand just went. Can you imagine that? Like they were using a real butcher knife. So this fucking kid's hand just slid on a butcher knife. Sounds horrible. Um, Yeah, I mentioned that him and... Mick says it was a great experience, and Tony was really supportive. He made this was a funny note. He said Tony was very supportive of the actors, but he made it clear that it wasn't. He wasn't very supportive of him as a director. <laughs> um, they they joked about how everyone on the crew, like the drivers, they all had stories about Perkins' eccentricities, and they asked for one. and Henry uh, Henry Thomas said Norman was like asking the guys at Universal Studios like the philosophy of theme parks. Like he would be <laughs> like. What do you think that ride's all about? Like, is it just fun to ride on or do people like it for something else? Like he just sounds like a fucking weird guy. And a lot of people said that, uh, Mick Garris said it blew his mind to ride the ET ride with Henry Thomas. Uh, Henry said he felt like he was employed by universal because he was there doing all those events for them while he just happened to be filming this movie. Uh, what else? Uh, Almost everything Tony Perkins does is on this set. Oh, there's like one set where Tony Perkins was doing all that stuff in his house. How do you keep it alive? Make it theatrical. That's why he tried to do the whole cutting through flashbacks things. I don't think that works very well. If that's that's how you keep it theatrical, by just cutting through horrible timelines in ways that don't make sense. (laughs) Um, uh, Oh, yeah. The psychologist in the radio scene, his name is, is an actor named Warren Frost, who's the father of Mark Frost, who's the creator of Twin Peaks. And I think we also noticed another famous father in there, uh, John Landis, famously father of of Max father Landis, father famous
1: filmmaker of Max Landis. Yes,
0: the direct, the writer of Bright. Um, <laughs> I mean,
1: that's you know, it feels like maybe I'm just like you know picking on this movie now, but like that was another thing for that matter. I know people in 1990 maybe didn't as universally you know d- d- disseminated like the whole deal with John Landis and the Twilight Zone. But it like, but why? Like that's what. what you does he do add right? to like, this? Well, we yeah, you yeah. gotta make sure John Landis shows his face in this movie. It just seems like he's <laughs> like,
0: somebody's
1: friend. Like, just seems. Yeah, is it? Is it? Was anyone expecting him to be greeted rapturously? I just was. I thought I was baffled
0: by that. Just why? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, there's another good scene that I mentioned. Uh, Norma finds like the the. The uh, equivalent of 1950s porn, which is just like an undergarment catalog (laughs) that uh, Norman's hiding. And she makes him go outside in his underpants in the rain. But then she comes out in the rain and is like standing there in the pouring rain with her cleavage and her like white shirt. And she's like (laughs) then teasing him again. So this movie is just all about how sexual repression leads to violence. And it's (laughs) just it's just a very strange movie. Um, Norman struggling for help throughout and not getting it. Uh, getting the wrong kind of creepy, sexy help from his mother, I wrote down. The whole mother is very sexualized and Norman is brought to shame for following through on any of his urges. Oh my God, that scene where Norman massages her with oils from her, like, ankle up. Oh.
1: Yeah. It's,
0: it's a lot, dude. It's a lot to take in. Um, I don't know if there's any more things worth noting here. Um, He says he and Perkins never fought, but they had, quote, conversations. Like, he said... He uh, Garris mentioned that he wanted to avoid camp, and that's when he said uh, Tony went into a forty-minute diatribe about what camp means. He's like, "What do you mean by camp? What is camp?" And Garris thought that he had insulted him, insulted Psycho Three by saying that or something, and he uh-huh. went the fuck off about it. But all he means is that there's a campy element to Three, and he didn't want that in this, which I don't think he accomplished. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's, there. Like, it's campier, yeah. It's campier. I would argue, yeah. Um, there are times when he'd go off on him Harris would ask Perkins to go in a different direction and he'd explain it and he wouldn't get it and he'd say Mick show me alright I will do that uh, I just can't imagine the difficulty of working with the guy who wanted to direct the movie it's just can't. Ugh, horrible um, oh and that emotional scene where like he's beating the rugs outside and then his mom comes out and starts yelling at him there were hundreds of tourists watching them film that on the universal backlog, which is just funny. Cause it was like an intense scene where she tells him she she should have killed him in, in their, in her, in her womb. In front um,
1: of a audience.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, Oh, and, uh, Mick Garris said, if I moved the camera one inch to the left, you'd see hard rock cafe. And if I moved it another inch to the right, you'd see the swamp thing. <laughs> so it seemed like it was fun to film over there. Um, Yeah, so that's really it. That's all I have to say. This movie's kind of a drag. There's no moving force pulling anything through it. I think there are such great ideas that I want to give this movie a higher rating than two and a half stars. Like I love the ideas planted about Norman's future and Norman's son and stuff. But I think it's just like, it's like, it's like window dressing on a much less interesting story, I guess would be my wrap up summation of Psycho 4.
1: It's such a bummer to know that Perkins uh, learned he had AIDS during the making of this movie and uh, died not too long after. I think he died in 91 or 92.
0: Yeah, he died in like September of 92, I believe. He kept his AIDS uh, diagnosis secret. Nobody knew except for his immediate family, his wife, Barry Berenson, his sons, Osgood Perkins and Elvis Perkins, who were 18 and 16 at the time of his death. Uh, oz we now know as oz perkins director of uh gretel and hansel and um other movies i'm the pretty thing that lives in the house and uh what's the movie that's changed titles twice it's february it was called and now it's called the black coat's daughter right i uh, like that coats movie. Daughter. Yeah. um but yeah perkins did die of aids um a couple years later and you know it did, knowing that when watching it the second time, like it's kind of emotional when he happily proclaims he's free at the end. Yeah. And there's like there's some extra textual layer there. And like n- it, there's something to the fact that Norman at, or at some point while making this, Tony Perkins kind of knew he had a death sentence. And there's something to that. Um, and there's a great quote. I have his statement that he wrote that he released after his death. Hold on. I chose to not go public about having AIDS because, to misquote Casablanca, I'm not much good at being noble. But it doesn't uh, make much to doesn't take much to see that the problems of one old actor don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. I have learned more about love, selflessness, and human understanding from the people I have met in this great adventure in the world of AIDS than I ever did in the cutthroat, competitive world in which I spent my life. Very sad. A really fascinating detail i want to say funny detail but a detail in his obituary that i found is that um the adventure referred to was perkins work over the last two years with project angel food an organization founded by marianne williamson perkins spiritual advisor that feeds homebound people with aids uh marianne williamson showing up on our psycho 4 podcast episode is a brilliant piece of 2020 magic it's
1: it's spookier than a lot of things. Since I go for it is you know and, and it's of course it's not really fair to McGarris, who's just taking a job. But it is it's also kind of a bummer to think about you know Perkins was starting this directing career later in his life and he, he did he did Psycho Three and which I thought was quite good and well directed. I haven't I still I'm meaning to watch the YouTube of Lucky Stiff his other only other feature as director which is out there on YouTube. That doesn't seem to be available any other way, um, but it seems like it has at least a kind of a cult behind it. And then he wasn't able to really do more behind the camera, just because I, I even just reading about whatever Lucky did, even if it's terrible, it, it definitely seems like it trying. It's trying to do something that feels of a piece with Psycho work in terms of being like a dark, uh, grim comedy, but also you know it seems like it involves sort of a sillier side. I can't wait to watch that one. Um, and yeah, it's just you know, it's a. He was not incredibly young when he died. He was about sixty, and it's, but it's still you know, it's kind of it's it's very sad to think about. He was interested in doing other things, and he didn't quite have that chance. He was just sort of starting to get into it in the last um, five, six years of his life. But he is, was a real talent, and so I, I would have loved to see some more you know obscure or not obscure uh, movies that he directed. I would have loved to see his take
0: on Psycho four. Totally. His wife said after he passed that he had such mixed feelings about Norman Bates. On the one hand, he began to think that others in the industry saw him as that character, strange and weird. On the other hand, it was a burden. It was very limiting to his career. Uh, it doesn't sound like mixed feelings. It sounds like he didn't yeah,
1: like a, it. <laughs> feelings.
0: Yeah, it sounds like he didn't but like he, it. He, he, um, he'll, at, you know,
1: he, he'll, he'll be. Uh, it, it's one of those things where it's like in the moment, I'm sure it is kind of frustrating, but he, that also means he's like such a major part of film history in a way that so many other actors who may be more acclaimed in their own day will not be. I mean, like, people are going to be watching Psycho forever, and he's like, you know, his performance is like the centerpiece of that.
0: Totally. All right, well, that's it for this one. I have a question for you that I may as well just ask you on air. Um, (laughs) We can, I I would like, well, next up is Psycho 1998, the remake, Gus Van Sant, but in between uh, Psycho 3 and that, in 1987, a year after Or, uh, no, sorry. That's right. Um, why can't I find... Oh, yeah. A year at... What year did this come out? Oh, this This, is... The year's all fucked up. So, basically, Bates Motel, a movie, a network TV movie that was proposed as a series pilot, aired in 1987, a year after Psycho 3 and a few years before Psycho 4. So, I guess I already fucked up the timeline. I was going to say, let's do it next. But sometime before the end of the series, we can do a uh, Gus Van Sant first. If you would want to do a bonus episode on Bates Mattel, uh, the 87 yeah, minute movie. I,
1: I, I mean, I'll try to watch this um, other stray, like uh, orphan Anthony Perkins movie by that point too. And see if we'll see if there's anything we're talking about there. <laughs>
0: for sure. So for everyone keeping track at home, we'll be back next week with psycho 98 and we'll be back some point in the next couple weeks with a bonus episode about Bates Motel, a made-for-TV movie from 1987 that was supposed to be a series that never happened. Um, and you can find that on our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash or the new flesh podcast. I don't remember. I'm so sorry. Please Google it. Patreon New Flesh Podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, the new I learned death is not the end on the new flesh on the new flesh
1: I was hoping you'd be back